when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with best-selling author and audiobook narrator Travis Baldry. Let's find out about its writing process and fantasy novel, Legends and Lattes. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. And this is Travis from Spokane in the middle of nowhere. At the heart, this is a story of friendship, well, friendship and bean water. So can you introduce our listeners to your novel of high fantasy and low stakes legends and lattes? Uh, well, Legends and Lattes is a cozy fantasy about an orc mercenary who in her 40s decides that she has done with a life of adventure and retires to open a coffee shop in a city that has never heard of coffee. And uh, it's really kind of about everyday things and about uh, little acts of bravery that have nothing to do with swinging a sword and about kind of finding the people that you connect with. One of the things that I've heard it described as uh, or kind of a phrase that's been pitched out there was what if hallmark movies met the forgotten realms and that was exactly yeah that was what that was what started it so um i am an audiobook narrator by that's what i normally spend all my day doing and i work live and i have a group in a discord that hangs out while i do it i read lots of like action adventure high stakes stuff saving the world because that's what people tend to ask me to narrate and (laughs) But I really like like a, like a fantasy romance, if I can get it. I call them like chicken soup books. You know, you just kind of feel nice after you finish reading them. And I, that was my joke. It was in the middle. I was like, you know, I just want to read I, I, exactly that. I want to read a, a Hallmark movie set in the Forgotten Realms. I think the I've seen two pitches now for, for dwarves here. One was Thick as Thieves in your Twitter feed, which I'm all for. And, <laughs> and uh, what was it? The, uh, the Dwarven miner who, uh, the Dwarven... Uh, financial uh, mercenary or whatever comes back home to uh, help the failing mine, which I still want to yeah, see. Yeah, that was my well. initial joke. That was, it was just a complete joke. There was no thought that I would write anything like it, but yeah, it was like the, the Dwarven businesswoman goes, it was the, the quintessential Hallmark movie plot. The, the businesswoman goes back home to the small town slash mine. There's all the weird quirky locals. She's a little cranky about it, but then there's probably some handsome guy in a sweater and maybe there's cookies and you know, good stuff happens. That's obviously not what I wrote, but that was that was my initial joking idea. And I did think, even when I sat down to write about an orc opening a coffee shop, like I thought there would be more of like a nod and a wink to the camera, and then it would be a little more tongue-in-cheek. And then within like two sentences, it just wasn't. Those are the style of movies that are like, I, I am not a big Hallmark person, but anytime I walk into a room and there is one, I, I end up engrossed. And I, I don't know what it is about those style of movies that just the simplicity of them. One of the things I think that it ends up, you know, there's a reason I think why Ted Lasso was so popular about a, you know, within the last year, year and a half. And it's because it has some of the appeal of things like a Hallmark movie without being totally saccharine. You know, if there's a certain amount of there's like some very real humanity to it and real, you know, more complex characters that have real failings. And but it's still extremely comforting to watch. So I think there's just like an evolution of that kind of story that people want. And my next question kind of plays off of that because Legends and Lattes is a cozy fantasy. And in this day, we are looking for cozy, especially after the past few years. Your readers love it. They've spoken. It's sweet with a dollop of romance. And it's a stay at shop adventure. 
Um, how did you decide? Because it's really like a calming pace to it. So how did you decide mm-hmm. on that pacing while writing? I wanted it to feel good to read, but I also like things to happen. I read since I read so much action adventure. I like every chapter, like do a thing. So there's a very kind of like progressive sort of assembling nature to the book. You're starting a shop and you're renovating. It's like watching something like uh, Fixer Upper. You know, it's very satisfying to watch this sort of progression of a thing from terrible to really neat. I, I don't know. It's just innately satisfying. And the, But also, I was watching a lot of the Great British Baking Show. And it's also a show that has drama in it, but it's drama all involving people that aren't... There's no real antagonists, unless you count Paul Hollywood. <laughs> but you still get invested in it in a dramatic way, even though everybody's essentially nice. And there's a lot of that sort of progression along both of those tracks. So every chapter, something happens, but it's not... Nobody's going to die. <laughs> In fact, that was, um, that was one of my rules for myself is that after the first sentence, nobody could get hurt because I read plenty of battle scenes and death scenes and war. I read a lot of this stuff and I like it, but I wanted to do the opposite of all of that. No one has to worry about their favorite character um, getting yeah. killed off. <laughs> Nobody's going to get bumped off. So what is your overall writing and editing process like? So I write at the end of the day after I record, I sit in this same audio booth that I'm sitting in now um, because it's quiet and there's no snacks and there's nothing to distract me. And I sit down here and I write a chapter and I just do it every day until I'm done. I'm a fairly clean writer. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm a narrator because I spend so much time living other people's writing out loud that it's kind of uh, clarified for me how, what I like and, and how I like to write. There's also like, I feel like I get a little bit of a, a, um, like a superpower of, for narrating out loud, which is that I can hear myself reading something out loud really, really accurately without reading it out loud. Because that's part of what you do as a narrator is you're anticipating and understanding and processing text in a way that you know how it's going to sound when you say it. And um, a lot of writers say that uh, the best way to edit your work is to read it out loud because you, you get a better ear for how the dialogue is going to sound words that are duplicated, complicated phrases that are difficult to comprehend, all of those just come out when you do that. So I kind of get to do that while I'm writing, which is really useful. But I still went through a really rigorous edit. I have a, uh, the, the book was written for National Novel Writing Month, I guess not last year, but the year before now, 21. And uh, it was written in the month. It was, like, it was like 26 or 27 days, just written straight through. And I have an author that I work with who goes by the name Forthright that writes, she writes, um, fantasy romance. I really love her books, but she also has a background in editing. And so we just bartered. I narrated a book for her and she edited my book. And uh, we edited it kind of in a non-traditional way. We did about a chapter or two a day and uh, she would send the edits back to me and I would review them. And the thing that I did that I think was actually really cool and useful for me was I would internalize the kinds of changes that we were making. And then I would pre-edit the chapters coming up. Because what I wanted to do was like take lessons from the editorial process, because why do I want to just fix the same problems over and over again? If I agree with this as a solution, I want to make it part of the way I write. And I thought that was actually pretty cool and not something that often happens. That's really cool. That's a cool barter system for, for getting. It's still a cool barter system. is it, so are you guys continuing on for the, the We did. The we did. She did a she did a first edit on the prequel too before I sent awesome. it into the tour because I was like, well, might as well make sure it's more or less the same, it feels the same. Mm-hmm. Um 
And you just can't ever have too many eyes. You kind of already mentioned uh, Forgotten Realms. Um, from what I've gathered, it's been a while since you, you got to dabble in that world, but what effect did, uh, or how did RPGs influence your writing? Um, so I have a lot of experience with games and RPGs and D&D is just, I haven't played D&D in a long time because I've, I'm old and I have kids and I never found a group after high school. But I worked in video games for decades and mostly made action RPGs. So I like uh, Torchlight and Fate uh, and stuff like that. So I've been kind of immersed in like D&D adjacent fantasy in a professional capacity for like a really long time. And it's also the kind of fiction I like. Um, I like speculative fantasy fiction, you know. So it's, it's all something I felt comfortable with. It just it wasn't it wasn't a stretch for me. So kind of branching off of that with the game designing, audiobook narrator, now author, the, the book itself is all about reinventing yourself. Obviously, you've done that a couple of times here. How do you go about it? I mean, what is there a fear involved in it uh, of the risk versus the comfortability? I mean, I think there's definitely a feeling of risk and a certain amount of fear to do it. I, I would love to say that I was as brave as Viv was in like casting everything aside and just switching my career, but I wasn't. I actually narrated audiobooks on the side and kind of warmed up to the idea over a series of years until I got to the point where you kind of feel like the, the plane's taking off. You can feel the wheels leaving the ground. You're like, okay, now's the safe time to switch. And then I planned for it and it took me like, you know, a year to kind of transition my business. So, you know, it's scary, but boy, I, I don't feel like I did it in the, the super brave way. I did it in the methodical risk averse way. <laughs> Your characters, speaking of Viv, are amazing and is a variety of fantasy creatures. So you have the orc, you have the succubus, you even have a hob, which I had never met a hob before. So this was my first hop with Cal. Um, and so it has a little bit of that like Irish British folklore and different uh, folklores in there. How mm -hmm. did you decide on which character like fantasy creatures to use? How did you adjust their lore to fit your story? And did you do any additional research? So I guess there's a couple parts to this. In general, I tried to choose what they were to kind of reflect what they subverted like mm -hmm. an idea that they subverted because the entire book is basically about a subversion. It's someone doing what's not expected of them the, mm -hmm. down to the buildings. The, the stable becomes a coffee shop. The, the, um, what feels kind of like the local mafia is actually kind of like the, you know, voluntary homeowners insurance that actually pays you and takes care of things when your building burns down. And so you have, you have this succubus who's basically like ace and is not interested in any of those things. And so they were generally chosen to set off that subversion in some way. But they were also chosen to be kind of comfortable. I think it's, it's really easy. Okay, easy is not the right word. You can, it's, you can go out and you can write a fantasy world that is very, very new. And it includes lots of things that you haven't seen before. And that's good for a certain kind of book. It's, you know, fantasy tourism and like, oh, I'm really immersed. It's like, a, you're, the, you're the stranger when you're learning about this place. And there's a real value and there's, there's a, there's something great about that kind of story, but this is not that kind of story. This is a cozy story. So people have asked me about this before and I'm like, well, you know, if you want comfort food, you don't go have lutefisk. You go have, you know, something that you know and understand and you just want a really good version of that. So the job of like the, the world and the lore here is actually to come to you rather than to make you work to go to it. So to a certain extent, they needed a certain amount of comfort. And there's there's kind of like some unique things that I like that are tucked into the corners, but you don't have to understand them to, to connect with it, I don't think. Which to me feels kind of important for this. 
I think Terry Pratchett did a lot of the same kind of thing with Discworld. He's got all kinds of very specific Terry Pratchett stuff tucked in all over the place, but lots of the big concepts and the races and the presence of death and everything else are things that you can immediately grasp and understand without having to have an appendix. And kind of going with the characters, you, you, since you're subverting them all, and you mentioned you had a rule without, you weren't going to kill any character. Was there other rules similar to that? Or did you like go in, like, these are my rules that I'm going to try and stick with? I have things that I like about fiction. I, um, I wanted the characters to all be adults. I read a lot of books where adults act like teenagers because it's a way of heightening drama. You know, there's lots of misunderstanding that someone could have figured out with a five minute chat, but that instead are the driving force for drama for seven chapters. And I find that generally kind of frustrating as an adult. That's not the kind of like conflict that I want. I think there's plenty of, you know, drama and conflict in everyday life without manufacturing it through like youth or inexperience or like um, this kind of like missed connection drama. So I wanted all my characters to act like adults. I wanted them to talk like adults, to consider things like adults, and to work through problems like adults. Beyond that and the hurting things, I don't think I had any specific rules because honestly, I didn't expect this to go anywhere. I really just wrote this hoping to get to the end of it and to enjoy it. I, I, I suppose if I had known that anybody would read it, maybe I would have done a few different things. I might have expanded it more or done something else, but I don't know, maybe I would have ruined it. <laughs> Kind of branching off this, obviously, as a audio narrator, you bring that unique perspective to this. When you are in the process of writing, do you kind of go into your writing process with the thought that it is going to be an audiobook at the same time and write with that mentality? I definitely know how it sounds. So I, I think I think it's probably unavoidable because I know what everybody's voice sounds like and I know how they would say things and I understand the cadence of a sentence. In fact, that's something that's always the first thing that happens during the edit is that I punctuate like I'm gonna narrate it. So the commas are where I would pause, not necessarily where comma rules matter. You can break rules for commas however you want, but your editor's first pass is gonna be like, oh, well, commas don't go in this specific place. And I'm like, well, but that's where I'm gonna pause. So that's where I put it. And sometimes I have to fight to claw my commas back because I, I gotta have that one there. <laughs> I guess that makes it easy on your end because you know this is how it's going to go. You're making your life easier in the long run by, by taking it in the short run kind of way. Mm -hmm. There's another thing I think, which is probably just that I tend to use the vocabulary that I have because I, 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 was, I wanted to sound like I would say it. And so it kind of gets automatically limited to a vocabulary that I would use, which isn't always useful. Like I, I'm from the South originally and I have lots of weird turns of phrase that nobody else recognizes. Um, like the past tense of, of drag, uh, you know, everybody else says dragged. I, I say drug because I'm from the South, but nobody appreciates it when you use that. Um, so <laughs> as Southerners, we appreciate it. It's words that we hear on a regular basis. I would say things like fix into, you know, there's still, I have like these embedded things that, you know, <laughs> sometimes, I have to, sometimes I have to mark them as dialect. You just have the apostrophe at the end, shortening the words. Mm -hmm. you, we got you, them, and y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and your your character voices are amazing because I listen to it. I'm I usually I'm super busy, so a lot of my books I consume through as audiobooks. And Lainey might be my favorite character. You do an older neighbor, um, female neighbor, very well, very convincingly. <laughs> and uh, you are an audiophile earphones award winner you've narrated a slew of titles and legends and lattes is a 2023 audi finalist 
since you were our first interview with an audiobook narrator, we want to know everything. Like, how did you get into the field? How long does it kind of typically take to record? And just what's mm -hmm. the process? Um, so I got into it on the site, like I mentioned earlier. Um, as an independent narrator, I, I had some of the equipment I needed because I own a game studio and I bought it for doing voice recording. So I didn't have to go into a studio to get some of the recording done that I wanted done. And Audible and Amazon have a service called ACX, which is available the, for indie authors primarily, where you can put up your book for audition. Narrators can audition for it. If they agree, you get that audiobook produced, and then it facilitates the publication to Audible. And most small presses and indies use this to great effect at this point. And so I started working through that system, and uh, I discovered that I liked it. So I kept doing it. As far as the way that it functions and what the job is like, Unlike a lot of VO, it's very scheduled. So most VO is like you hustle, hustle, hustle. You get like, oh, I want to get a commercial spot or a video game voice or whatever. And then you've got a gap time. Audiobooks are much more regular because you schedule them out. They take a predictable amount of time based on a word count and you just do them, which is really nice. So I typically record about three hours of audio a day, which is a little on the high side. I think probably averages maybe two, two to two and a half. Um, at least for full-time narrators, part-timers have less time to do this. And uh, usually about uh, 10,000 words of a book for me is about an hour of audio. So a 100,000 uh, 100, word book is about 10 hours, and it would probably take me a little over three days to do. And uh, I just continue doing that. So the, as a narrator, the way you work is you get your script, you do whatever prep you're going to do, and you just sit down and you read the thing and you record it. Uh, most narrators use a system called punch and roll, where if you mess up, you can take the playhead back a little bit and it'll give you like a little lead in and you start talking again. And so by the time you finished a chapter, you kind of have a done chapter. Most of your mistakes are gone. You're still going to make mistakes. So you then send it off to a proofer and the proofer is going to listen to it and check it against the text. They'll look for any weird sounds you missed, anything you mispronounced, things that you just transposed or otherwise messed up. They give you a list of those. You correct those mistakes. And then it usually goes through an engineering process where it's mastered to be kind of like uh, consistent volume levels and, you know, other little tweaks for, you know, high and low frequency sounds. And then you're done. So that's kind of the production process. It varies a little from place to place, but that's the general gist. That's awesome. So uh, we obviously live in a technologically advanced world here, and we're starting to see computers jump into various things with like chatbots and, and various mm -hmm. AI. Obviously, that's something that's now kind of creeping into the, the audio nature as well. So how, as an audiobook narrator, do you... How, how contend do you with that? that? Yeah, contend. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. So I personally, I'm not terribly concerned about AI narration because AI narration, there's some critical things that it's just, I don't think ever going to be able to do. We're absolutely, and already can make AI narrators that sound like a human. But we, there, we have millions of humans who can't narrate an audiobook right now and sound like humans. The process of narrating a good audiobook involves bringing things that aren't actually in the book into play to expand on the context in the book and make them relatable and human in a way that just reading it doesn't, regardless of how human you sound. Other things like you know actual real emotions, subtleties of emotion, these things are difficult to do for an AI. Accents, specific voices for specific characters, we will absolutely have the technology to do that. We may already, but the amount of labor required for someone to go through and say, oh, well, this, this dialogue is for the dwarf and, and it's got it's to be Scottish apparently and it needs to be you know, gruff and low and I'll assign all these things and you have to tag it throughout the script. 
once you've done that level of labor, you might as well have just paid an audiobook narrator to narrate it. There's absolutely going to be a ton of audio of AI narrated stuff, but I we'll see how people respond to it. I think there's certain kinds of books where people just don't care. They're just like, I, this is a self-help book. I'm playing it on 2x speed. I just want to listen to it while I jog and extract the information. Even that, I think a human narrator is easier to retain the information because there's subtleties of inflection that cause an idea to hook in your brain. And an AI can like approximate the cadence and feel of a human voice, but it's very difficult for it to emphasize the right things that make a concept stick. We'll see how it goes, but I feel generally confident in that most of the narrators I know, and they're doing things that an AI can't do. And if the person who's doing it cares enough, and hopefully they do, they're going to want a human to do it. But there's also a lot of books that don't have AI, they don't have narrated versions at all, because it does cost to do. Somebody's got to be paid to do it. There's definitely advantages for people who are sight impaired so that they can listen to things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to read. We have kind of like, there's the library for the blind already that does tons of audiobook conversions that you know might not otherwise be available but still there's this this option for accessibility that we wouldn't otherwise have but i still think narration is narration and it's going to be it's going to be around for a long time you know how we've had like cg people in movies for like decades and decades and decades now and you can still tell and it's still a human driving the performance and there's still a human coming in after the fact, trying to clean it up and make it work. We still have an uncanny value. And there have been billions of dollars dumped into this for a human that only has to fool you for like how, a couple of minutes on the screen. The idea that we're gonna be able to have an expressive AI that can narrate and is gonna be able to fool you for 10 hours just feels like that last 5% takes way more time than people think it's gonna take. Even like pausing in a sentence, if you just have something straight through, they don't, they just go on to the next sentence without mm -hmm. little things like that. And yes, CGI, like practical effects are so much better. I really wish we had more practical effects in TV. <laughs> yep. Okay. So we're going to talk about 2022. How okay. weird is it to first get self-published, get picked up by tour, become a New York Times bestseller? Then a Goodreads Best Fantasy Choice Award nominee. I did vote for you, even though you had some tough conversation there. And the latest, even though this is technically 2023, you have just been announced as a Nebula Award finalist for Best Novel. So what has this roller coaster been like? It's been ridiculous. Um, I don't know how to feel anything but like grateful and lucky because I really honestly do feel that it's a lot of it is lightning strike and timing and the state of the world at the time of the release of the book. And I think mostly what I did was just happen to be in the right place and not fumble it too bad. So it's hard not to feel fortunate to be there because that's a lot of fortune. And a lot of it has to do with other people getting out and pushing booksellers sharing the book, people sharing it on social media, people basically just all doing me a solid. And none of that is anything that I could have done on my own. So mostly I'm just really, really grateful. It's such a, there's something really heartwarming about writing a book that's basically about people being nice because if people like it, that's why they liked it. So the response when you get it is usually just really nice. It's, it's hard to overstate how nice it is. <laughs> I think the bookstagrammers are probably where I uncovered Legends and Lattes. So yay, bookstagrammers. I was seeing it Lots all over the place. I was like, gotta read it. Yeah, it was great. TikTok, <laughs> bookstagram, mm -hmm. uh, booktube. You know, it was, um, 
And before it even, before it was even picked up by Tor, it was far beyond anything I had expected just as an indie. It ended up being in like most Barnes and Nobles in the country before it was picked up for traditional publishing and lots of indie bookshops. And that's really down to other people. So there's the trick that Barnes and Noble like booksellers can use to get a book in that's indie because normally they don't. And there's a, there's a prohibition on doing it, period. They've got such limited shelf space. But what they can do is they can order copies in for themselves. And if they cancel them when they arrive, they convert to store stock. And then they can hand sell them to somebody. And if somebody buys them, then they can say, oh, look, it's sold. Will you let me order one? And they'll say, okay, well, you can order like two. Wow. And then they order two. And if they sell, then they can order some more. So they use this loophole to get them in the door. And then because all the Barnes and Nobles are kind of like in small networks, it then spreads inside the network because they talk to each other. And so that happened for this book. And, you know, I, it's crazy. It's bonkers. I think I saw a Barnes and Noble book signing that you had where people were in cosplay. Several, several. And that was before it was picked up. That's it was before wild. it was picked up. Um, it was bonkers. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm still beside myself. So, so how's that been? Uh, having people come up to you and doing, doing the cosplays and interacting it's with you as your characters. It's unbelievably <laughs> charming. It's unbelievably charming. It's unbelievably charming. People have gotten tattoos. I have so much fan art and it's, I adore it all. I have a pile of it. People made miniatures and Lego sets and sculptures and crocheted Ratkin bakers. And it's crazy. It's multiple cosplays, couples cosplay. It's, it's unbelievable. All the hearts. This past year, I, I kind of got pulled into some corporate law drama because we had the OGL uh, fight over D&D. And we've talked about mm-hmm. this before with some uh, other people, but I don't think we explained it. So give me a brief moment here to kind of talk about how at one point, uh, Dungeons and Dragons decided they wanted everybody to to use their rules. So they uh, allowed an open source of their rules for other publishers to make adventures and stuff for them so they could outsource the drama or uh, outsource their adventures. Cut to a few years later, they tried to pull it back. It didn't go well. Cut to this year, or I guess now last year, they said they were going to do it again, and everybody kind of raged against it. So it's, you know, a, a corporation trying to take back what they once had to kind of get some control of their of their play. That being said, I ask, I lead into that to ask this kind of question. You started off independent. You're moving into the traditional kind of publishing corporate controlled world. How do you balance those two where you, you go from having that, that control over anything and everything you want to do with it versus now giving it to, to potentially a corporation that can do whatever they want to with it? Um, well, there's a limit to their control to a certain extent because the IP is still mine. You know, they have the copyright for the book, so they can do whatever they want with the book. But my experience with Tor has been uniformly positive because the people there care about books. One of the reasons I was excited to go with Tor and decided to do Tor was because I like what they do with books. They care about their books. They have a really broad range. They target all kinds of different stuff. Um, They do great covers. They care about their books. They have a really good reputation. And if I see Tor on a book cover, I'm like, oh, well, I'm, I'm willing to look. I was a little concerned when I went into it that I would lose control. That it would be like, Okay, well, here's the book. And now I'm going to, you're going to tell me all the things I have to change. And it has not been that way at all. Not at all. Everything has been super collaborative. At the, at the end of the day, they're like, this is your book and we're going to make suggestions, but, and we can tell you why. And, but ultimately it's your book. 
And so it's, it's been really great. Uh, they let me be involved with the cover art this time out. I commissioned the previous cover. We use the same cover artist. They let me be on the thread and be part of this process. That's not normal, I don't think, but they were open to doing it. So my experience has been great. The main differences for me are speed and timing differences. And like, um, if you're an indie author, you can refresh Kindle desktop publishing every like 10 minutes and just see what's happening, which is really cool, but also not necessarily a great use of your time. <laughs> But it's a level of like transparency and control that you have, which you don't have. You can ask anytime you want and they'll happily tell you, but you don't have a little graph that you can watch. And uh, as an independent, you are paid monthly, you know, after like a 90 day delay or something till it starts going, you're paid monthly. And it's like twice a year at a pub and it's all a lot more opaque and it goes through your agent and it goes through the publishing system. If you want to publish a paperback on Amazon, you can do it and it'll take you 72 hours and it'll just get printed on demand and somebody can get it to print things more traditionally. They've got to order them from overseas. There's a process. They have to get into warehouses. Things are just slower. It just works differently. Then the flip side of that is that other cool things become possible. You can become a New York Times bestseller. You can get nominated for the Nebula. You can show up in a Hudson News in an airport. And those things are just not going to happen as an indie. So to me, I, I don't feel like I've lost anything that wasn't significantly like outstripped by the game. That said, I would still do it the same way again, because going through the submission process is not something that I really want to do. And I think that as an indie, because of that speed, you have the ability to iterate really quickly to go for something successful. Like if I was doing this again and I was like, okay, I just want to try this out, I would absolutely just write a book and release it and then see what the response was and then go from there. Because if nobody liked it, you can quickly do something else. It doesn't sit in somebody's slush pile for a year. I wonder if my book will be a hit. You just find out now and then move on and learn and do something new and iterate. So I think, I think that both are actually kind of like powerful together. <laughs> How does that process actually work then as far as like you submit it, to, you, you do your own thing. Where does, how does Tor enter into the picture? How does Tor enter the picture? So what happened to me was agents reached out to me because the book was clearly selling itself and had, you know, some certain amount of like accreted interest through like three agents approached me about taking a traditional. And at that point I was like, well, why not? I should just see how this works. I mean, what do I have to lose? Because at the time, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to quit my job to become a full-time author. I haven't been like at the diner just desperate to get my break. I like my job. I like reading audiobooks. I didn't need it to like save me. So I said, sure, why not? And they took it out. And then I think within 48 hours or something, Tor came back with, a, with like a timed deal. And I said, cool, let's do it. I think that happens more and more now because it's hard to market things because a lot of book marketing seems to be organic. And so I think that publishers are looking a lot for things that are already going to sell themselves. So they don't have to, because it's a lot of money to try and market something you don't know if it's going to hit. And if you already have an inkling and you can scoop that up and do it, then that makes a lot of sense. You have like this litmus test that you can check ahead of time. So things like uh, Rage of Dragons and Senlin Ascends and the Atlas Six, these are all self-pub to traditional pub conversions. And I think they happen more and more. We just interviewed Olivia Atwater and hers is similar where it was self-pub and then now she's traditional. And mm -hmm. she even mentioned um, Legends and Lattes. She said that it felt like a, let me see, a coffee shop sim game, which I can see that. <laughs> it was it was a very positive review. 
It has, and, that, it has that progressive thing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and Legends and Lattes, you wrote it during NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month uh, through the uh, November 2021. Um, do you have any tips for future NaNoWriMo writers? Uh, we do NaNoWriMo at the library like every year and I always want to give tips. Um, it's a It seems like a daunting challenge. <laughs> I think it is. I had so many failures before I succeeded, just acres of them. So here are the tips that I can think of. For me, I thought I was a pantser and it turns out I'm not. So for anybody who doesn't know, a pantser is someone who just gets out there and writes and it just comes out of them and it's amazing and they fix it in post. Um, I did not want to be a plotter, which is somebody who actually outlines their book, but it turns out that apparently I have to do that. So if you have been one or the other and it hasn't been working for you, maybe it's just time to try the other one. The next one is to have a nano buddy is to try and get someone who is actually going to commit to it the way that you are, because it's invaluable. My nano buddy, uh, even short kind is another narrator. And we both finished our books together and kept each other on task. And it was huge just to know that somebody else is going through it and cares if you finish. So that was huge for me. And you know, all the boring stuff about that, like keep it on a schedule. Don't let yourself take a day off and, you know, clear the time and get it done because it's really hard to pick up momentum. If you, if you lag in the middle. Yeah, I, I wrote up an entire thing on the entire process of publishing this. If you mm -hmm. want to Google it, it's self-publishing A to Z, and it'll be on Medium somewhere. If you look oh, up cool. self-publishing Travis Baldry Medium, you will almost certainly find this, but it's like a really long write-up of the entire process from Genesis to getting it done in Nano to everything involved in actually self-publishing it. And so maybe, maybe that's interesting to you if you're looking at Nano this coming year. Oh, that's awesome. We've kind of discussed this in some previous author interviews about how the overall writing process tends to be kind of a, a lonely one, but it's, it, I guess it's, you know, hearing that you, the, the buddy system, you know, plays a part or the accountability, that's something that's been popping up more and more of late. And I, I mean, you know, it's, it's popping up in different fields as well. We, where I've been reading articles about uh, ADHD workers having someone mirroring them so that they can be processing the stuff a little bit mm -hmm. better. So it's, it's interesting to hear the, the buddy system being a, a, a part of it. Yeah, there's the accountability. And then I think maybe another part of it is treating them as a target reader to a certain mm. extent. So I was mm -hmm. treating my buddy as a target reader. So I was really writing this for somebody to read, not just to get it done. I, I wanted them to like it. I wanted, I wanted, I was looking forward to like, oh, are you going to enjoy this when it's done? Are you going to respond to this? Is this going to work for you? And so having like a theoretical audience in mind for me was also helpful because it just makes, it makes it feel like I'm doing it for a reason. And to also double back, if you go to your website, the self-publishing A to Z is also on the, uh, the link. Up oh, the yeah. Left. I guess I was smart enough to stick it on there. I, for, I forgot about that. I finally did add that. Because we're librarians. We know how to find things. We search. We research all these things before we go on any of the interviews. One of the things I saw you, I think it was probably in the Twitter, where you talk about how parts of the book can be like a window to the moments of, of you as a writer. And it's nice to see that connection when somebody yeah. else finds those. So to what extent do you put, you know, yourself into your writing? Um, initially, I didn't plan to at all. Then it obviously happened almost right away because it became, in a lot of ways, you know, almost autobiographical stuff with the, that the main character was contending with. But um, in writing this book, and then especially in writing the second book, it became really apparent to me that for me to get through and care about the characters enough to get to the end, there had to be some basically intrinsically relatable human element to it. Like something that happened to me or that I understood that made me feel a certain way that I hoped somebody else would also connect with. 
And that's, as I'm writing it down, that's what I'm hoping for is like, you will see this and you will recognize it. Because when you do, you get like this little thrill. It's this like, I'm not alone. Somebody else sees what I see. You understand the same thing I understand, which is, I think, very powerful and very, very human. And it doesn't have to be a complicated thing. You know, in the first book, it could be as simple as, you know, the abject terror of starting a new business or just moving to a new city where you don't know anybody. And that horrible moment when you go into a restaurant and everybody in there is a stranger and you know, you have this fear, like I'm maybe I'm never going to know anybody here. Um, and those are just very, they're not complicated, but they're relatable human moments. To what extent do you feel like uh, fiction can uh, change human, human life or human experience or? Improve um, I mean, I definitely do because I think that I think it lets us see a way to be, um, even if it's not about the way that we want to be. Maybe it's a way we don't want to be, but it lets us like it's like a sounding board for how we want to define ourselves and how we want to approach our life. And that again, there's that recognition that somebody else had the same understanding and put it in a book. So maybe this understanding is validated. Maybe this is a shared thing. And I'm not silly for thinking, for believing that I can do this or that I should be able to feel this way. I don't know. I think stories are very validating that way. In fact, the second book is a lot about that. And can you describe a little bit about um, your, your prequel book, Shops and Bone Dust? It is set about 20, book, 20 years before Legends and Lattes. It follows the same main character, Viv. Um, she's in her early 20s. She is with a mercenary company hunting down this necromancer. And she's still kind of headstrong and young and super into getting out there and mixing it up. And she gets injured as a result. And they dump her off in a really crappy beach town and go off without her. And so she's thwarted and annoyed. And she feels like her life is passing her by. And she immediately runs afoul of the local law. And... While she's stuck there, she befriends this very foul-mouthed bookshop owner whose bookshop is failing dramatically. And it's kind of about how she learns to enjoy reading. Their relationship sort of develops as this, this bookshop owner, whose name is Fern, is kind of like trying her out on books. She's sort of, it's almost as she gives her these books, it's sort of like a dialogue where she's feeling her out and they're coming to understand each other through the books she picks and what she gets out of them. So there's these little excerpts of these books in various genres that she picks. And so it's about how those stories allow us to see each other in interesting ways. And also how little things that happen really early in our life that change us fundamentally much later in ways we don't expect. These little bitty seeds that all of a sudden grow and 20 years are passing. Like, why did I do this? Oh my God, it's because I had this one conversation with this one person, or they put this one book in my hands all these years ago. And I thought of this, and that's largely what the book is about. And you just had your cover reveal, and there's already tons of fans for Fern and Pot Roast. That's Pot Roast. Pot Roast is a griffith, which is basically a pug with the head of a snowy owl. And, That's uh, adorable. He's pretty great. <laughs> so when we ask for you to be here, we promise fun. So one of the fun things we like to do is we play a game. Uh, I can't refer to it as the name that you might possibly know it because I'm not allowed to say curse words because Sarah says no, but we call it Kiss Mary Ditch. <laughs> I'm going to give you three categories inside those three categories. You'll choose one of those three categories inside those three categories. There are three things in there. You will tell me one that you like, one that you love, and one that you want to get rid of. So okay. the categories for you to choose from, and I've hidden these categories behind punny names or, you know, something that will throw you off, but still gives okay. kind of a clue. So your categories are feral beans, queen sweep, 
And by the way, which one's pink? Feral. We are going to be talking about Will Ferrell and coffee movies. <laughs> Will Ferrell has done a couple movies where he has been uh, involved with coffee. Obviously, uh, Legends and Lattes deals with a coffee shop. Uh, so three movies here. We've got Zoolander, Talladega Nights, and Kicking and Screaming. Oh, gosh. Uh, so we'll, we'll uh, kiss Kicking and Screaming. We'll marry Zoolander because what is this a school for ants and uh we'll we'll ditch Talladega Nights oh we're spilling the macchiato to uh <laughs> to give you an idea of what the other two were a queen sweep we would have asked you some stuff about bed knobs and broomsticks oh that's a good one yeah I, I, I have, have seen that an unbelievable number of times as a kid growing up, my parents would throw a New Year's Eve party and I was too young. So I would get locked in a bedroom and that seemed to be constantly on every New Year. So I have experienced this movie a numerous amount of times. So finding somebody else who loves it is always so much fun. All right. So I'm going to interrupt you just to tell a really quick story because it makes me laugh. My 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 eldest kid, when they were little, watched beds, bed knobs and broomsticks constantly and loved the end where the Nazis are, you know, coming in and then are run off by the suits of magic armor. Loved it so much that when, when we were in grocery stores or honestly anywhere else would stab a finger at people standing around us and say, get out of here, you Nazis, as loud as humanly possible. And, you know, like, like four years old, you can't stop them. But anyway, that's my bed. story. <laughs> and by the way, which one pink, which one's pink is a reference to Pink Floyd who fly giant pigs uh, at some of their concerts. So we would have <laughs> talked about Studio Ghibli. Oh, and that would have been a good one too. Cause yeah. speaking of cozy fantasy. Yep. And since Legends and Lattes is on my fun reads list, I was curious what you read for fun and what are you currently reading slash watching? I read lots of novellas because my actual reading during the day is so, so guided by my schedule. I just recently read Thornhedge by T. Kingfisher, Ursula Vernon, which I loved. And uh, what am I watching? I'm watching Poker Face. The... Um, Natasha Leon uh, mystery thing that's very much like a modern Columbo by uh, the guy who did uh, Knives Out. Oh, awesome. Anyway, it's pretty great. That's been popping up in my feed a lot. And I'm, I've got so many other things I've got to watch that, you know, I hate It is weird more. how much she is like Peter Falk is all I'm going to say. And it's not until you see it. She's not doing anything different than she normally does. It's just like once you see her in action, you're like, wow, you really are like Peter Falk. You're selling me on this because I have, I have been a Peter Falk Columbo fan. Just one more thing for the, you know. It is, it is the, the template. In fact, even the title fonts and the credits look like Columbo. It always starts with you knowing how the crime, who did the crime, and then her coming in and like putting together the, it's, it's Columbo. You're going to like it. You should just watch it. From everything you said, you should just watch it. Yeah, you've made me jump it, so I got to put it on there. He usually has a list going, so I see it on the <laughs> list. <laughs> so we have asked this question since the dawn of time. We use it as a gauge to see, you know, while most people can't tell us what's on the future, we use this as a hint of what might be on the future. Uh, so what is the strangest thing in your search history? The strangest thing in my search history? Gosh. Wow. Um. Probably something to do with Halifax shipwrecks. That's recent. 
I have a friend who lives in Nova Scotia and went to a museum there because of the Halifax explosion. I don't know if you're familiar with the Halifax explosion, but uh, it showed the map of Halifax shipwrecks. So I was looking up Halifax shipwrecks because there's an unbelievable, like, like 25,000 shipwrecks around Nova Scotia or something that they project and they have this heat map anyway. So that's a pretty weird thing to be in a search history. Is it a place for divers go to check out the shipwrecks or is I don't know. I think it's just, I, I, there were lots of salvage. Apparently it was so frequent that people, as soon as they've got the people out of the water would immediately swoop in to salvage, you know, the wreckage and anything valuable from it. Cause it just happens so frequently. Wow. I can't remember the explosion too much. I think I think it was on a my favorite murder episode, but I'll have to. <laughs> Where they talked again. about it, yeah. There was like a big so. <laughs> munitions boat that was filled with all of these weapons, mm-hmm. all of these explosives, and then it caught fire and went into the bay and crashed into another boat and blew up like all of Halifax. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. We are a library podcast, so how have libraries impacted your life? I spent an awful lot of time in them as a kid, you know. Um, over in the adult section and wandering all over the place after school. And it's like one of the only places where you can just go and hang out and nobody expects you to do anything. <laughs> you and can no just go and kind of be. Mm-hmm. No money's involved. You don't have to buy anything. I, I love libraries. Um, our library downtown just went through a renovation and I'm, it's just the coolest place. The Spokane Public Library, the central one is just, they did such a great job on it. They have so many cool services. Like you can go down there and and you can record a podcast. They have recording rooms. You just check in and do it. Libraries provide so much more than just books, I think. I mean, books are the most important thing, but make fan of libraries. Yeah, I'm recording in our podcasting studio here. (laughs) It's so cool that that is an available thing that people can do now. Mm -hmm. And we'll see what the future holds here. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Uh, Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hit you with one minute of rapid fire questions. I'm going to put a minute on the clock. We'll see how much we can get through. Okay. Do you learn by watching or doing? Doing. Sword or sorcery? Sword. Do you correct people's grammar? No. Tabletop or computer games? Computer games. Uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. Fantasy or romance? Split the difference. RPG of choice. Uh, Wasteland. Potential for pot roast plushie. Oh, I hope it's high. Did you secretly deliver surprise trucks? (laughs) We did not. Uh, Movie you enjoy quoting the most? Oh, gosh. UHF. Uh, Punchline to your favorite joke. Wow. Oh, this one's going to take too long. Um, um because it's past tense. All right, we get a minute. I love that it's UHF. If you have not seen Weird yet, I highly recommend <laughs> Weird. I haven't yet, which seems weird, but I really should. I just forgot about it at this point. Now I have to go watch. I, I will do Poker Face, you do Weird. We will both right. be happy. That's fair, that's fair. And what is a typical day like for you? Uh, I get up at five, I do my workout, I make lunches for children and rouse them out of bed and make sure that they're bathed. Um, And then I head downstairs and I pop into this booth and record for a couple hours before lunch. And then I record another couple of hours and then I go pick up kids and, you know, whatever the evening holds after that. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there uh, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? 
I am just really grateful to anybody who read this book and shared this book and made this a really pretty incredible year. So thank you. I've shared it with everyone. I purchased a bunch for Christmas presents and our library director is reading a copy now. So she's been really enjoying it as well. Thank you so much. And we will encourage everybody to continue to drink from the fire hose of your writing. <laughs> ah, you got the UHF quote in at the end. It works out. <laughs> thank you again. This yes, has been wonderful. You. I had a great time. Thank you both so much. It's been so Pleasure's fun. I've been ours. waiting for this one. <laughs> <laughs> it was fabulous. Thank you so much, Travis, for joining us on Unstacked. Legends and Lattes is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out his website, travisbaldre.com. That is T-R-A-V-I-S-B-A-L-D-R-E-E.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.